In June 2021, Barrister and Member of the Bar of Ireland, David Nolan Senior Counsel, conducted an interview with the Honourable Mr Justice Kevin Cross on the occasion of his retirement. The conversation, covering his education, his career of 36 years at the bar, personalities at the time, and his work at the bench, is now being made available to all. We hope you enjoy. Judge, um, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, talk to us today uh, about your uh, years on the bench and your years in practice and indeed uh, years before that. So we're very much obliged. It's my pleasure, David, at least I hope it will be. <laughs> Judge, you, I think, were uh, educated originally by the Jesuits and they have a, a great reputation of, uh, of creating advocates. What were your early experiences uh, with the Jesuits? I was in Gonzaga. I was taken from a 15, 14 year old who was terrified of the sound of my own voice by the uh, encouragement of two great Jesuits at the time, uh, Father Joe Veal and Fred Cull. Uh, and they turned me into somebody who couldn't stop talking. And uh, that was uh, a wonderful gift, and I, of course, never said thank you to any either of them. And now it's too late. You, you mentioned that you were uh, the, the Jesuits who were uh, uh, formative. The debating society, the debating society in Gonzaga at the time, founded by Joe Veal and kept on by Fred Call, it's called on Cogoil, uh, and we um, met uh, with fourth year, fifth year, and sixth year, uh, and. People were assigned uh, every term with a motion to debate. And in my fourth year, when I was still uh, frightened of reading a voice verse of poetry, I was given a, a topic. Uh, and I remember lying awake in terror at the thought of speaking in public. But gradually, uh, my interest in public affairs and whatever, and my, the encouragement I got from my various teachers uh, brought me out of myself. So you entered, I think, UCD in the late 1960s. Would that be correct? No, I, I entered in 1970. I uh, studied, I studied arts, uh, which was my first love. Uh, history, the history departments were at that stage uh, the nearest equivalent. I, I've said it before to the Greek schools uh, in uh, in Belfield. Belfield was a building site. Uh, we were the first year there, and uh, then to keep my professionally minded parents happy. I did what um, you could do at the time. I combined second arts with uh, first King's Inns. Uh, that was basically to keep my parents happy. So you didn't have any particular interest in the law as such? Well, I didn't. I couldn't say that, but I regarded it as, at the time, would start as being a uh, of secondary uh, interest to my history. And uh, I think I think it's very important, actually, for barristers uh, and to do things other than a law degree, or as possibly as well as a law degree, but things other than a law degree. It wasn't your only interest in UCD, though, at that time. I think you had two other interests. Would that be fair? Well, uh, I, I, I might claim the Fifth Amendment on that, but uh, if you're referring to academic interests or, um, or um, extracurricular interests. I, extra I, I was thinking of your wife-to-be. Ah, sorry, then I certainly claim the Fifth Amendment. Uh, yes, I met Alison in UCD uh, in our first year. She was studying as the BCL and arts at the same time, which was um, a, a pretty 
horrendous degree of study to do. And we met and we uh, ignored each other for a while. Uh, but then you, did your paths cross in the LNH? Uh, our paths crossed in the LNH. In my second year, I was appointed by uh, Declan O'Donovan, who was elected as auditor, notwithstanding the fact I didn't support him uh, as he uh, onto his committee. And Alison was appointed as the social secretary as well. Uh, but again, we were had we were friends long before we were romantically involved. And did this get you the fact that you were on the committee of the LNH? Did that get you more involved with the LNH, or had well, you involved, spoken as a? I was involved from the beginning. It was uh, I, I attended the first meeting uh, of the year. Mary Finley, later Mary Finley Gagan, was the auditor, the first woman auditor. The society still met as it had done since its foundation on a Saturday night because students were always uh, from the country, stayed in Dublin from October to Christmas and from Christmas to Easter and uh, met on a Saturday night and still met uh, in the Earthford Terrace, even though the main college had, had moved to Belfield. And uh, it was, a, I suppose, a cheap Saturday night entertainment. Um, for the uh, students. I remember the first night was a, deb a debate on parliamentary democracy. And James Dillon, who had been the leader of Fine Gael, was the guest speaker. And he was introduced as being someone who uh, was a unsuccessful candidate for auditorship of the LNH. And somebody in the, in the heckling from the back said, ah, you were always beat. And he drew himself up to his full height and said, would you care to name the person who defeated me? And from that on, I think I was caught. Uh, the person who defeated him actually uh, became a, a priest. So it was quite unfair by Dylan, but that I will find out later. And so that was in your first year or, uh, or your second first. year? Yeah, no, it was first year. And then second year I was on the committee. And um, then in my... Uh, Fourth year, I became auditor. There is a famous photograph, though, I think, in uh, uh, the Ellen H. history uh, of, uh, is this you and Frank Clark? Um, yes, it's a, um, and that, at that stage, uh, on nominations night, um, uh, the candidates uh, took a race around Stephen's Green. And there's a photograph of my of Adrian Hardiman, who was running against uh, Frank and was successful ultimately. Uh, and Frank and I was uh, photographed holding back Adrian in the race uh, to, uh, in fact, Frank, uh, since he once defeated Eamon Cochran in a running race, had, had no difficulty in defeating Adrian but he, in the race, but he didn't succeed despite my support uh, in the contest. And was that after your year as auditor? Or no, was no, I was, um, uh, Adrian was the year before me uh, and Adrian moved the society to Belfield and to a Friday night at the time. So who were the, the great debaters uh, of the time in UCD? You've mentioned Frank Clark and you've mentioned Adrian Hardiman. Who who were the other big beasts? Michael McDill, he was uh, very impressive. A um, Declan O'Donovan, who became auditor after uh, Mary Finnegan and before, or Mary Finley and before uh, Adrian, uh, he was also a very, very uh, impressive debater. Um, 
the uh, William Early, who subsequently became a solicitor, uh, he, I remember him. Then I, later on, people like Jerry Danaher, um, Aidan Matthews, who came on in, when I was auditor. Uh, there, were, uh, there were lots of them. Kevin Feeney uh, was always uh, there to give a concerned speech about uh, uh, matters of, of, of progressive ilk. And, uh, but I suppose you'd have to say that Adrian was the star performer. Uh, and what was it about his, his, uh, his, his oratory that made him star? Well, you had a combination of a cherubic-like uh, appearance uh, and uh, aggressive uh, logical style that was uh, unbeatable. He also was uh, countercultural at the time. At the time, that was quite a, a radical uh, period for student politics. Um, we were all on the progressive side, but Adrian was unashamedly on the reactionary side, and that made him stand out. And uh, he uh, enjoyed that, I think, as well as uh, capitalising it. You finished then your 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 days in uh, your, your arts degree. That was a four year degree. Three, three, three degrees. Uh, I started doing an MA as well, but I never finished that because uh, the train tracks that I was on in the uh, doing the King's Inns took me uh, to the uh, to the bar. You were called, I think, in Trinity of nineteen, uh, if I'm right, nineteen seventy five. That was quite an um, uh, an august uh, call. Uh, I see that included people like Richard Nesbitt, uh, Hugh O'Neill, uh, and uh, the Master of the High Court. Uh, uh, yes, indeed, the Master of the High Court, and indeed myself and uh, uh, my present wife, Alison, was also called. You came then to the bar and yes. you devilled with a uh, an unknown, quiet, shy and retiring junior counsel in Cork, by the name of Dermot Gleeson. I did. First devilled uh, in Dublin for six months or so with Ricky Johnson. And the contrast was magnificent uh, because they were two different types of barrister. And um, I mean, I had I decided to go to Cork. I mean, I'd left Cork at the age of four uh, and had only been there because my parents came back from England for less than a year. But I always, my parents are both from Cork and my family are from Cork and I always had an affinity. And some stage after a, an LNH meeting, Dermot uh, was at that meeting or at the party thereafter. And he said to me, you're from Cork, you should devil with me. He was then in his first year and he said, by the time you get through in about, I'm in my third year, I live desperate need of a devil. So uh, I was his first devil and um, that was a great privilege as indeed it was to be a privilege before that to be Ricky's death. It was a fantastic education. In fact, right throughout my life, I have been fortunate in that I have had fantastic teachers and I have never stopped, I hope, learning. I'm still learning today when I'm sitting as a judge uh, from the brilliant advocates in front of me. And I had uh, great teachers uh, both in college and uh, at the bar. You, you mentioned uh, Ricky Johnson. Uh, 
Ricky obviously was uh, well, known, well known to most of us as uh, president of the High Court, but a uh, uh, most efficient and uh, always a humorous judge sitting on the bench. Uh, and he, he, he was very uh, good with the people who appeared in front of him. What was he like as a, as a master? He was uh, similar, uh, charming. He had certain rules before he took me on. Uh, he said, um, do you smoke? And I said, I don't. And he said, fine, I can't stand the, the smell of tobacco. Uh, do you take sugar in your coffee? He said, and I said, no. And he said, fine, that would be far too exhausting for me to pour out a cup of coffee and then having to go somewhere and look for the sugar. And uh, then he, um, asked me the last question, do you know any law? So I have no, I have amnesia for my uh, answer, but I do remember his response, which was good, that makes two of us. And what was the law library like at that stage? There were uh, th some 300 or so barristers in the whole place. Y you were known by everybody, but especially people who had aspirations to be elected to the Bar Council certainly came up to meet you, but it, most people uh, did. Uh, and the main difference, apart from the numbers, were the fact that in my call, I've counted, there were six, uh, there were more uh, females called, but there were six who went into active practice out of the 40-something. That made a brought up to 14 or 15, the number of women in 1975 in active practice at the bar. Uh, Alison went on circuit to the Western Circuit. I went to Cork. Before that, any barristers, uh, female barristers, tended to work in Dublin in specialised fields. And Alison was part of the first uh, generation of uh, women who uh, practised in everything knockabout civil, criminal, land law, tort, everything. Same time, Maureen Harding-Clark was uh, going on the uh, Leinster Bar, and uh, they were pioneers. In the following years, they were joined by more. Uh, and it was a time in society when society was opening up, and Alison said that apart from, I think, two occasions, uh, she met uh, no discrimination uh, at all, or no, uh, once, uh, she was representing somebody in a, on a circuit appeal and uh, the client turned to the solicitor and said, Mr. X, with all my troubles, why have I got a, a wee girl representing me? Uh, and uh, the other time was uh, on our first uh, occasion down the High Court, the Western Circuit, as usual, were having a dinner and as usual, it was booked for the Galway Club, which had a men only policy and the club wouldn't change that. And so Alison had her dinner in a chipper nearby uh, as the Western Circuit dined. That was the end of, I think, an era of uh, discrimination. It's not all perfect, but it certainly has changed dramatically since then. So you went down to Cork uh, to follow in the footsteps of the great uh, Mr. Gleeson. And uh, and how was his trade at that stage? Uh, his trade was uh, burgeoning and uh, he was on the fast track, I think you would have to say. Um, I mean, when I went down to Cork, uh, there were, I think, 14 or 15 barristers in practice, one or two of them. Uh, including Lee McKechnie and uh, Don McCarthy were operating from Dublin and going down to Cork, but they were 14 or 15. And um, 
I remember a, a another slightly older barrister, Harvey Kenny, uh, later circuit judge, saying to me that Dermot, in fact, his advent uh, shook up the, the uh, circuit because up to then a solicitor's office might brief X and they brief him and it was always him uh, for the entirety of their work from crime, civil, conveyancing, everything. And um, by uh, being dynamic and good, uh, Dermot uh, broke up that and people then uh, briefed wider. So it helped not just Dermot, it helped those of us coming after him. And of course, I was fortunate to come in in the mid 70s, mid to late 70s at a time when the work was expanding faster than the number of barristers. And that meant that uh, a new circ a new barrister in town, uh, solicitors would try you out. And if you were half good and only half bad, uh, they might give you a second. And and that's how it was. It was much easier for somebody of my generation to make a start than it was for somebody now. Did you stay down in Cork? Uh, yeah, you I, I stayed so. in Cork, uh, bought a house, got, uh, got married. And uh, Alison then commuted from Cork uh, to Galway and Mayo uh, while she was on circuit until uh, after our second child was born, uh, she decided that she'd give it a rest for her for a few years and she gave up the Western circuit. So who were the advocate stars in the bar then when you took Silk? Well, uh, the same uh, as um, when you were there. I mean, a number of people who had been stars when I started as a junior, like Colm Condon and uh, Niall McCarthy and Eamon Walsh, they'd obviously either retired had um, uh, or, or, uh, uh, had been appointed a judge or had died. Or, uh, Colm Condon was still in active practice, of course. Uh, you had in Cork coming down, Liam Gaynor, who uh, uh, had his own brand of um, rectitude in that nothing ever went wrong for Liam. Yeah, Rafe Sutton was an, is a name often mentioned uh, as having a great advocacy style. Rafe had a wonderful advocacy style. He was beloved by juries. He was the identical of what somebody would think a barrister should be. Uh, not in the aggressive style, but in the uh, gentlemanly style. And he uh, had a commanding uh, practice in uh, defamation uh, for both plaintiffs and defendants. Uh, and also uh, in later years, then he, he took to prosecuting on behalf of the DPP, which he thoroughly enjoyed because again, it uh, gave him the contact with the juries. So you were a, a very successful uh, senior counsel. I think you were uh, uh, on a, a, a number of inquiries. And certainly uh, before you took the bench, you sat, I think, as counsel uh, to um, uh, uh, one of such inquiries. But it wasn't an inquiry. It was the redress, Red Residential Institutions Redress Board um, where uh, I, uh, I was involved in uh, assessing the uh, statements uh, of abuse to see whether the case should go for a hearing or for a, uh, a settlement and also was involved as counsel in a number of the cases uh, in the board and indeed in some of the JRs that were taken uh, as a result of various decisions.
Did that take you out of the mainstream of work or were you still able yes. to keep your practice? I mean, I suppose it did to a certain extent, but I was, suppose, glad to get it. I was also glad to get uh, work uh, as a, one of the advisors to the um, Fitness to Practice Committee of the Medical Council and later to the Dental Council and uh, Board Alternate and, and, and a few other regulatory bodies. Uh, it did take you out to a certain extent and... Uh, you mean you can't, you, but you can't be everywhere. Uh, I still maintain, was able to manage to go to Cork uh, with the personal injuries uh, actions uh, every session and to keep that going. And also uh, the redress board under uh, Judge Sean O'Leary was sufficiently flexible that you could do other work uh, combining it with the the board, uh, some of the work I could do with the board was to, could be done on the weekends, for example. And then the opportunity to take the bench arose, I think, in two thousand and nine or ten. In two thousand eleven. Well, you were called to the bar in nineteen seventy five. You took the bench in uh, two thousand and eleven. So thirty six years practicing as a barrister. Uh, uh, how did you find the change uh, uh, going from the bar to the bench? I found it uh, very easy, actually, uh, because I think a judge has to do the same thing as a barrister. Uh, they have to, you have to make up your mind. A barrister has to make up his or her mind every second minute of the uh, of the case. A judge really has to make up his or her mind at the end of the day. I mean, of course, you have to make certain rulings going through, and especially in, in PI-type uh, work. Yes, of course. But... Uh, when you your job is to make up your mind, your job is to decide the case. Your job is not to make large pronouncements uh, of general importance. That is evidence of the judge's disease, crititis, as they call it. Uh, and the crititis is there for every judicial level, whether it's a judge of the district court saying he or she is going to not tolerate that sort of thing in my district to somebody in the superior courts thinking that they are going to make great law. You're not. Uh, if you look at the volumes of the Irish reports that I'm looking over the screen that they're in the distance there in my chambers, all of that back to 1928 could probably fit all the useful law into four different volumes if you're if you're lucky and in uh, 20 years time there'll still be four volumes but there'll be different contexts and uh, the most serious and important cases that you do or do you think you're doing uh, are going to uh, be of little importance in 20 years time because the world has moved on and uh, so I think a judge is much more significant and plays a much more important role, not in what they decide, but how they decide the case, how they go about doing their judging, because that affects not just the barristers and the solicitors, it affects the uh, litigants, it affects the witnesses. And uh, I think a judge has an obligation not to increase the misery that people have in coming to court any more than is absolutely necessary. There is an, ele an element of misery in litigation. Of course there is. You don't have to be of great uh, incisive mind to know that. Uh, people come to court because they have a grievance or they are uh, resisting somebody who has a, a grievance. 
and it's not easy. Judges should not make it any more difficult than it should be. And and I think uh, the same goes for, for barristers. Of course, you have to cross-examine. Of course, you have to uh, make points. Uh, but uh, try to get it away from the personal. Try to get it away from the the unnecessarily aggressive. I mean, if some witnesses have to be dealt with sternly. Of course they do. But um, I think that the idea that a barrister should always be uh, pounding the, the desk and uh, putting the foot up on the, on the bench and uh, looking stern is not uh, the best way to get things out of uh, witnesses. Obviously, uh, trials with witnesses are an important part of the judicial function, but they're not the only uh, part. You uh, every Monday uh, sit uh, uh, adjudicating on applications and submissions yeah. uh, and the common law motion list. What are the types of uh, uh, styles uh, that, that, that you appreciate uh, in those motions? Uh, different judges in motions have different styles. Uh, I suppose I do uh, base my jurisprudence, if that's what it's called, uh, doing motions on my first master, Ricky Johnson. And Ricky famously had a view in relation to applications for time or whatever, three weeks, two weeks, one and a half weeks, or words that. Uh, most of the motions can be dealt with by sensible agreement. I favour, I suppose, notoriously, somebody cutting to the chase. You've watched the prof both professions, that both of bar and bench, evolve now over a, don't want to really hammer at home, but 46-year period. Thank you. What are your, your, your views about the, the, the profession of a barrister into the future? Yeah, I know that there are a lot of people who are pessimistic about various things. But that was always the case, David. Uh, when I, the, the first session I was, I, I appeared in Cork in the High Court. Uh, it was just after the then opposition spokesman on industry and commerce, De Desi O'Malley, had made a speech in which he was denouncing the number of lawyers in, in personal injury actions. And two, I heard a conversation between two reputable and senior and very important uh, senior counsel saying to one another that, that this session was likely to be the second last or possibly third last sessions of personal injury cases in Cork. It was all over. And some barristers say that. And they said it after every change. But I am optimistic. I do think that there is an absolute need for an independent referred referral bar. It is the most efficient way of doing things. It guarantees independence of the advocate before the judge. If uh, a judge is facing somebody who, say, who is in, in full-time employment of a firm or of a party, state even, and that person says uh, the water was flowing uphill. Well, you'd be inclined to doubt whether there's independence speaking there. But if a barrister says something, well, then it has been my experience that the barrister will not deceive the court. If a barrister does deceive the court, well, then their reputation is ruined. So 
That independence is of vital importance for the administration of justice, because if we have to check every sentence, that every I is dotted and every T is crossed, then the time that we will spend doing cases is going to expand multiple multiple times. So I, I think that it is in the interest of justice, it's in the interest of the public, uh, that, um, that 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 the bar triumphs and uh, is a success. Judge Cross, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced by the Bar of Ireland. For more podcasts, news, upcoming events, and member insights, visit lawlibrary.ie.